Welcome to the Food Freedom Fertility Podcast. Here, we discuss the challenging, rewarding, and life-changing process of recovering your period and finding freedom with food and exercise. Whether you're hoping to regain your cycle to get your health back on track, or you're ready to become a mama, this podcast is for you. While the recovery process isn't always rainbows and butterflies, it's my hope to bring you both information and inspiration during your own recovery journey. I'm your host, registered dietitian and fellow HA woman, Lindsay Lesson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Food Freedom Fertility Podcast. I am beyond excited to bring on the guest that we have today. She probably has the most knowledge out of any person I know um, about hypothalamic amenorrhea. So Dr. Nicholas Sykes, formerly Rinaldi, has a PhD in biology from MIT. Since experiencing hypothalamic amenorrhea or missing periods herself, Dr. Sykes has been on a mission to spread awareness of the condition and how to recover. In 2016, she published the book, No Period Now What?, which was updated in March of 2019 to be more health at every size aligned. This book is a comprehensive resource, which includes much of the medical and scientific research that underlies our current understanding for the triggers for amenorrhea, what steps to take for recovery, and the treatments to use for recovery and pregnancy as needed. Dr. Sykes now also works with clients on period recovery and getting pregnant. Welcome, Dr. Sykes. Oh, thank you so much for having me today. It's lovely to chat with you, Lindsay. Yes, Nicola, I'm super excited. I mean, having you on the podcast is going to be huge. I mean, for me, obviously it's huge, but especially for so many people listening, because you have done the most research out of any person. You probably have the most wealth of knowledge on period loss with HA recovery and getting pregnant. And so I'm just so excited to dive in, um, ask you some common questions I get and just yeah. let you very eloquently, as you always do <laughs> answer them with all of the science. Um, but also in a way that's like super understandable. So I really appreciate that. So, um, I kind of like to dive in and do a little icebreaker, this or that, so we can do okay. that before we jump into questions. So, Sounds good. Um, yeah. Your dream vacation preferred, are you a mountains or a beach person? Oh, actually, I would say somewhere in between. <laughs> I like going to new cities and checking those out. Um, and like sitting on a beach, like, nah, not so much. I mean, if I can play volleyball or, um, you know, go for a walk or play frisbee, you know, that might be good. Um, mountains, I love skiing, but, you know. I'd rather be somewhere in between where there's more interesting things and more people and um, history. So yeah, in between. Sounds like, sounds like <laughs> wanting to do something where there's activities going on. There's things to yeah. explore. Yeah, yes. I love that. Yes, yep. Okay. How about you? Um, I am probably more mountains. I think I'm like you too. Is it, If it's going to be the beach, I want, you know, I can only take like maybe... 24, 48 hours of just sitting on a beach. Like I'm going to want to go do a hike or I'm going to want to go, you know, um, paddle boarding or or doing something. I like to. Oh, paddle boarding is fun. Yeah. Move around. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, are you more of an early bird or a night owl? Just like preference or like when you're most productive. Oh, for sure. A night owl. I wrote the book basically between 9 PM and 2 AM, um, working every night for about three years. Yeah, I've never really enjoyed getting up early in the morning. So even these days, it's like I never schedule calls with anybody before like 9 Uh a.m. Absolute earliest because I just 
I can't get out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you find what works for you and clearly you have. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. All right. Um, yep. Milk chocolate or dark chocolate? Definitely milk chocolate. Milk yeah. Chocolate. I just like, I prefer the flavor of the dark chocolate is just a little too bitter for my taste. Yeah. So. yeah. And I might even go further and say white chocolate is actually my favorite. Oh yeah. 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 Yep. I like, I like, I like that. Pick your own. <laughs> <laughs> um, social, social media channel of choice, Facebook, Instagram, or, you know, or others. I know like TikTok, and I know you, you run your groups off of a different one. What, what is your, what is your preferred social media channel? Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram at the moment. Um, but sort of, I feel like I'm in a lull with social media. I'm kind of <laughs> over it, honestly. <laughs> like, I used to spend so much time on Facebook and um, now I'm just kind of like, I just, you know, I'd rather watch a show or play on Duolingo or something. So I don't really, it, it's, it's, kind of a problem in a way <laughs> it, it's, it's, it can it can totally be exhausting so I totally yeah saying yeah okay last one what would you rather have in unlimited amounts money or time oh time 100 <laughs> percent if I could have like 24 extra hours in a day I would be so golden because there's so many things I want to do I mean like right now I'm working on um, a new website um, getting more into video stuff uh, translating the book into like four different languages, um, the support group, working with clients, like they're, they're, and my kids. Oh my God, my kids on top of that. Like there's just <laughs> right. not enough time for everything. Well, probably, probably number one. And then the other things come after, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, speaking of your work, you know, the book, no period. Now what has been so impactful for me personally, and so many people, so when you were initially writing it, did you ever anticipate the impact that it was going to have? Absolutely not. I mean, I sort of, when I was writing it, my goal was like, I'm going to sell a thousand copies and that's going to be like amazing. And now I, you know, I'm, I'm well over 10,000 at this point and, wow. you know, that's growing amazing. and, um, you know, I think translating into other languages is going to be fantastic because I keep getting people who are like, I wish that, you know, I wish I could share this in Spanish or German or French. And, um, you know, so I think that's, I think that's going to be great. Um, yeah. But yeah. I mean, it's, it, it was just like, it was a niche thing. And I mean, I had the Fergal Thoughts board and there were like 300 people on there. And so it just, I didn't realize how widespread HA really was at the time. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that's something we really have the internet to thank for because it's just so much, there's so much more information out there now than there was when I started. Um, and I think it's, I think it's a real benefit being able to find information about sort of these more slightly more unique conditions that people might have. I completely agree. I mean, if it weren't for, you know, the internet, I wouldn't have been able to find the book, figure out what was Mm -hmm. going on and, you know, be able to go through the recovery process myself. So I love that. And I love that you're, you know, expanding and, you know, again, like almost like worldwide translating into other languages, um, is going to be so helpful for so many. So 
you know, in writing the book there, cause there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who are, they either own the book, they read the book, mm-hmm. you know, five times. So yep. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people are familiar um, with the recovery process in particular quote all in. Now, mm-hmm. I also think that, thank you, social media, there are wonderful yep. things in social media, but also social media, I feel like has portrayed the all in process. I feel like there's a lot of myths and misconceptions mm-hmm. about the recovery process. Mm-hmm. What have you found that's been probably the biggest misconception that you hear about the all-in process? Um, I mean, I think it's just a lack of understanding of sort of the, the multiple aspects of recovery and sort of people hear all in and they think it just means like eat all the foods, like eat everything all the time. And, you know, that's all you need to do. Um, you know, and, it's, that's an easy way to frame it, but it's, it is more than that because it's not only about, you know, it's about nourishing your body. Well, it's about eating all the different food groups. It's about eating throughout the day, um, you know, regularly. Um, it's about cutting out high intensity exercise and it's the mental work. And I think that's, Mm -hmm. I think it's really the mental side of recovery that gets lost in the quote unquote, all in term. Um, and I think that, in many ways, the mental side is the biggest challenge and the place where people get the most benefit. Um, and I think when I talk about the mental side, it's it's sort of reframing how you think about food um, in terms of not being afraid of food, because I think there's so much fear mongering around like, oh my God, if you eat sugar, like you're going to get heart disease and diabetes and, you know, turn into a puddle of jelly and all these horrible things are going to happen to you. And sort of pushing back on some of those things that have some basis in fact, but there's just so much more to all of those, you know, all of those things. There's so much more nuance that just gets lost. It's lost so much of the time. Um, so it's having a better relationship with food and sort of not fearing food, not being afraid that one molecule of sugar is going to like be poison. It's not, um, you know, poison is poison. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Sugar is not poison. poison sure is. Yes. <laughs> um, and then a lot of work on the body image side. And, um, you know, we're so pressured to think that small equals good and larger equals bad. And if you're in a small body, like the idea of getting even a smidge larger is bad. And, you know, so it's really pushing back on some of that and learning about the science behind what is true and what's not true in terms of body size and health. And also just in terms of pushing back on the idea that fat equals ugly. I mean, it's, you know, that's something that's just, it's a message that we see all the time, starting from very young. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it just marginalizes so many people in our society. So, you know, that's, that's all part of it. Exercise as well. Like, again, it's, it's getting past this idea that every single form of exercise, every single moment of the day is quote unquote healthy. And, exercise absolutely is healthy. Like, you know, it's good for our hearts. It's good for our brains. It's good for our muscles, but so is rest and sort of coming to a place of more balance, your understanding of exercise versus rest and working and not working and allowing your body time to repair. Um, 
And again, it's just that messaging that we get that exercise is good for you. So more exercise is better. And, you know, exercise three hours a day. Great. Good for you. You know, it's like, but when, when does your body get to fix itself? And so all in kind of encompasses all of that. It's the physical, it's the emotional, it's the mental. And I think that that's often lost in the, you know, the little nuggets on Instagram or um, Twitter or where, wherever it is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, I think because people are so obsessed with, you know, eating and how other people eat, we tend to overemphasize. I mean, yes, the eating part is huge, but the exercise is huge too. Like you can mm-hmm. eat all day long and, and maybe never get your period back if you're continuing yeah. to overstress your body. So what would yep. you say, Dr. Sykes, to somebody who is wanting to recover their period, but they just don't want to give up that exercise piece. They might even be saying, isn't it unhealthy to stop exercising? What would you say back to that person? Well, first of all, um, I think it's important to check what your definition of health is. I mean, if you're not menstruating, you're probably not healthy because a menstrual cycle is a sign of a healthy functioning body of a person with a uterus, shall we say. (laughs) As with everything, there's a range, like there's there's a range of normal, there's a range of not normal or unhealthy. Um, so the idea that exercise always equals healthy, I think is just, you know, I think that's a myth. I mean, mm-hmm. if your but if your menstrual cycle is shut down, that is a sign that your body does not have enough energy and is not healthy. The idea that continuing to exercise in that, in that state is healthy is probably not accurate. Um, in that case, I think rest is rest is healthier. Um, there is a, I've just been looking at some some work done by Dr. Cameron Eddy. Um, we're going to have her on the podcast shortly. And one of the papers was found that um, even exercises that should incre- should lead to increased bone density in people that were oligoamenorrheic uh, did not lead to increased bone density, which, you know, you've probably heard as well is, you know, when you don't have the estrogen from your menstrual cycle, your bone building is, is not up to snuff basically. So people like to exercise for their bones, but if you're not having a period, the exercise is not actually helping your bones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, again, it's just pushing back on some of these, some of the idea, these ideas, like exercise is not always healthy. And I so appreciate that because I'll even hear from people that I've worked with that they're getting pushback from their doctor saying, no, you need to be exercising for your bones. Um, mm-hmm. But I just so appreciate that, you know, especially coming from you and also the research that you've done is like, no, like they've, we know that when you aren't getting a period, you don't have that same bone building benefit from exercise. And so what I'm hearing is that the best thing that you can do for your health is to take the necessary break, get your period back. Yes. Then we can kind of reap the benefits of exercise. hundred percent. Yes. And when you have a normal working menstrual cycle, you can do a lot of high intensity exercise um, and be totally fine. You can do a little bit of underfueling, but it's sort of that combination of exercise plus underfueling plus stress that kind of gets things really out of whack. And so I, I think that when somebody has a normal menstrual cycle, as long as they feel well, they can typically do a lot of exercise, but it's the underfueling part that when that comes in, to play as well that things sort of go downhill. Yeah. So interesting, right? Because I think that when people lose their periods, they like to play the comparison game. They'll say, mm-hmm. well, you know, 
why can that girl in my CrossFit class do CrossFit six days a week? And she never loses her period. Or why can Mm -hmm. that girl who's skinnier than me get pregnant? And I have to deal with, you know, period loss and infertility treatment. And so, yep. Is there a genetic component? Like, what do you think caught leads one person a to exercise and follow a specific diet and, um, and, and have a period versus person B exercise the same way, maybe have a similar diet and then lose their period. There absolutely is a genetic component. There have been, um, a few different studies. There was one that I referenced in the book where they looked at seven different genes that are related to the menstrual cycle. Um, and they did, they did find mutations in people that had HA versus people who did not have HA. Um, and that's looking at seven genes. So, you know, there are about 20 hormones involved in our menstrual cycle, and then there are the receptors for all those hormones. And so any one of those proteins, if it's slightly, if it's modified slightly so that maybe the binding interaction between the proteins isn't quite as strong, that can give you sort of a susceptibility to HA. Um, so I think that for sure there's a, for sure there's a genetic component. Um, another set of interesting studies, um, I think done by Dr. Nancy Williams, um, looked at monkeys and found that even in monkeys, there are, there are some that they call low stress resistant who lose their periods basically with either exercise or stress for, for a monkey, a stress is moving the cage um, or under fueling. And then there are other monkeys where they can have the combination of all three and they don't ever lose their menstrual cycle. Um, so it's pretty clear that there is sort of an underlying genetic sensitivity to fueling and or exercise and or stress that um, those of us that have HA are susceptible to. Um, But I think it's, I think it's interesting because a a lot of people that I've worked with that have had HA have said in the end, they're kind of glad that they're a little bit more susceptible because it has allowed them to make the changes to their lifestyle and recognize that, you know, they don't have to control their food to the to the infinity degree and they don't have to exercise every day in order to be happy and healthy and enjoy their lives. And so I think that in some ways, HA kind of is a little path out, out of that prison of, you know, food and exercise control that gets you to a better place in your life. So it feels hard when you're in it, but hopefully like a lot of people have found that they really benefit from the recovery process. I could not agree more. And I love that as a silver lining. Um, Mm -hmm. I think too, you know, not everybody loses their periods, but everybody's body responds to stress differently. And our bodies do give us warning signs, right? Like someone Mm -hmm. might be experiencing some extreme GI issues. Somebody might be experiencing stress fractures. And so I think, you know, it's kind of, when you start thinking about your period as like a vital sign, it's kind of cool to like learn, okay, my body's maybe telling me I'm training a little too hard this month. Maybe I haven't been fueling properly. Um, and so I think it can, again, you know, kind of be full circle and be yeah. something that you can actually appreciate when you go through yeah. the recovery process. Of course, it's not yes. fun, you know, it, yeah. while you're and in I it. And I think also, um, I think also that a lot of, there are people who have, aberrant menstrual cycles who haven't necessarily lost their period Mm -hmm. and who also do benefit from going all in or working on recovery in some aspect. Um, So, you know, the book is written for people who have completely lost their periods, but I've also had people contact me who are like, you know, I'm only getting a period every three months, you know, can you help me figure out what's going on? And 
you know, it's often a question of, is it something like PCOS or is it a form like a mild form of HA? And, you know, if you look at your eating and your exercise habits, then often you can get a good idea and sort of, you know, if you check some of the HA boxes, like maybe you're doing intermittent fasting or maybe you're on a low carb diet, um, you know, often sort of transitioning that to eating more regularly through the day or adding some more carbs, like often that can be helpful in terms of regulating periods and, you know, improving rates of ovulation or luteal phase or all, all of those things. Yeah, no. And thanks so much for that too, because I do think that even if you haven't lost your period there, you can have, is this right? You can have issues with your cycle being mm-hmm. regular consistent ovulation. What are the things, what are kind of the warning signs, Nicola, if somebody is listening to this and they are wrecking, maybe their periods are seemingly perfect. Um, but what would be the warning signs someone should look out for that? Maybe they're not eating enough. Maybe they're not at a healthy weight for their body. I mean, I think there, there are a lot of different signs, you know, sort of all of our body systems are affected by the amount of energy that we have. So if you're somebody who feels cold all the time, that can be a warning sign because your body is reducing its internal temperature in order to save energy. Um, uh, brittle hair and nails can be a warning sign. I really encourage people to track their ovulation because um, that's really the driver of the menstrual cycle. And you can have a bleed, you can have an, an ovulatory bleed. If you have a follicle that's sort of trying to grow, doesn't quite get all the way to ovulation, dies back, the drop in estrogen can cause a bleed. Um, but so tracking your ovulation is super helpful for kind of assessing the overall well being of your menstrual cycles. You know, you should be ovulating most months. You should have a luteal phase that's sort of in the 12 to 14 days, the luteal phase being the time between ovulation and when you get your period. Um, it's obviously super helpful if you want to get pregnant or it can be helpful for avoiding pregnancy as well. Like knowing when you're ovulating, you know, your fertile days are probably the five, maybe six days before you ovulate and the day of ovulation. So if you're avoiding pregnancy, you know, that can be helpful to know as well, because then you can have a better sense of when might be safer or less safe in terms of pregnancy chances to have, uh, to have sex. So yeah, lots of reasons. Tracking is, a, is a very powerful tool and mm-hmm. you know, if somebody is not ovulating or their luteal phase is less than 12 to 14 days, do you feel like that's a sign that maybe there would be some potentially under fueling going on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that, that certainly can be a reason for anovulatory cycles or, um, luteal phase cycles with a luteal phase defect. And, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think that our bodies benefit in so many other ways from adequate nourishment. I mean, like, like you're saying GI issues, I mean, you probably know more about this than, than I do as a dietitian, but I think that really like having digestive issues can sometimes just be about your body, not getting enough fuel. And like the constipation is your body's trying to extract as much energy as it can out of the food that you've eaten. So it holds onto it for longer. Um, right. you know, right. so a lot of these, it, that's another big side effect of underfueling is digestive issues. Poor digestion. Um, yeah. 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 Yep. Well, and you know, a lot of the people that I work with, and I know you work with too, fertility is a huge motivator, right? Like obviously mm-hmm. you're not getting your period, you're not ovulating and you can't get pregnant, but fertility is obviously not the only thing, right? Because if yep. we're strictly a fertility issue, then we wouldn't have an issue with people just jumping into fertility treatment and then not worrying about the period. So can you talk yeah. a little bit more about kind of the health repercussions of not having a cycle beyond fertility? 
Absolutely. I mean, so again, the, the research I've been doing um, reading Dr. Eddy's papers has been uh, really fascinating. So they've been looking at impacts on brain function. Um, so in the book, I talk about the potential for sort of an earlier onset um, dementia or neuro, neurocognitive issues. Um, and that's based on studies that were done in people who've had either surgical menopause or gone through uh, life, life change menopause. I'm not really sure what the, what the appropriate name for that is. Um, you know, age-related menopause, shall we say. Um, and there's definitely, there, there's definitely signs that there's an increased risk of dementia once you don't have the ongoing changes in estrogen and progesterone every month. Um, but beyond that, so um, the, the MISRA lab at, I think at Harvard, uh, where Dr. Eddie works, um, has done some studies where they've looked at um, anxiety and found that people who have amenorrhea are more likely to be anxious, um, more likely to have body image issues. Um, but so, so, I mean, there's, there's obviously effects on our brain. And part of that is because our brain uses something like 20 to 30% of our daily energy goes to fueling our brain. So when you're under fueling, your brain is not getting the energy that it needs. So a lot of people feel like they experience a bit of brain fog or like fuzzy thinking when they're under fueling and when they start fueling better. Um, I was just chatting with a client the other day and she's like, I've only been all in for two weeks and I already feel like I'm happier, like I can think better, you know? So it's, there's just, there's, there's definitely that cognitive benefit. And they found that, they actually found that after six months of estrogen, people with amenorrhea were, did a little bit better on those cognitive function tests. So, I mean, that's huge. Like our brains are really important. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's so interesting too, what you said about anxiety, because I feel like a lot of times people with HA have anxiety and they're clinging to control over their diet to mm-hmm. kind of cope with anxiety. And so it's just kind of hard. Cause I feel like that can get people stuck. They have anxiety about eating, more yeah. anxiety about gaining weight yet. The under fueling is actually probably making their anxiety worse. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So there's those, there's mental benefits. Um, obviously there's, I, I think most people know that there are bone benefits to having on like the normal changes in estrogen and progesterone. Um, the research is is a little bit equivocal on sort of exogenous estrogen, so from a patch or mm-hmm. a pill versus um, estrogen from a normal menstrual cycle. But from my perspective, the increase in estrogen that you get around the time when you ovulate, you know, your estrogen before ovulation will be somewhere in the maybe twenty to forty range. And around the time that you ovulate, it's going to be in the 200 to 400 range. So tenfold higher, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot higher than what you get from any kind of estrogen supplementation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then same thing with progesterone. Like before you, before ovulation, your progesterone level is probably going to be less than one nanogram per mil. After ovulation, it's in the 20 to 40 range. So 20 to 40 plus times higher. Um, so there's it's hard to know like all of the different things that those in those large changes in hormones are doing in our bodies. Um, but I suspect that outside supplementation is not quite the same. Um, mm-hmm. and there's also, as I was saying, there's, there's a whole bunch of other hormones that are involved in the menstrual cycle as well. Like there's 
FSH and LH and prostaglandins and inhibins. And so, you know, I think that if you can restore your natural menstrual cycle, then you're much more likely to get sort of those ongoing benefits from all of those hormones, as opposed to just replacing, uh, you know, just replacing a couple of them. Yeah. Um, I feel yeah. like I went off topic there a little bit. So no, no. I, <laughs> bring I think, me back in. <laughs> but I think that it's relevant, right? Because what I, what I hear you saying is that, you know, most people, probably the first thing I think a lot of times in the medical community, the biggest concern is bone mass. And yeah. for the longest time, this was my experience, at least it was, oh, don't worry about not having your period. We'll just put you on the pill because it's giving you synthetic estrogen, which is going to, you know, quote unquote, protect your bones. But what I'm hearing you yeah. say is that- um, we have a reason to believe that having a natural cycle is going to be better for not only your bones, but also like your mood and your yes. sex drive and just a, a myriad of other things. It's not just about, yeah. you know, the, and it's, the yeah. And it's not even just the hormones, also the absolute fact of your body having enough fuel to do everything that it needs to do. <laughs> So that the pills definitely cannot give you. (laughs) But I think so much of that makes sense too, because I I also just know, you know, amenorrhea aside, myself and so many people that were on hormonal birth control for so long, you just have Mm -hmm. all these complaints. I don't quite Mm -hmm. feel, I don't feel like I actually have a sex drive. I, you know, because it's not your, your body's actual hormones. So, I mean, that would make sense too, that it would not have the same impact on, on bone mass and all of the other things. What about heart issues? Are there concerns for heart health if you were not having a period regularly? So again, the best information that we have here comes from studies that have been done in people post-menopause. So there is absolutely an increased risk of cardiovascular disease after menopause. Um, And interestingly, there was a study, I think I talk about it in the book as well, where they found that... um, in one phase of the menstrual cycle, I think it was in the follicular phase where estrogen tends to be lower. There was also a slightly increased risk of cardiovascular events during that phase of the menstrual cycle, as opposed to during the luteal phase. Interesting. Okay. Um, and then I know there are, there are now ongoing studies of heart health in um, people that have amenorrhea and sort of looking at estrogen supplementation and, you know, does that affect the heart parameters and how much. Um, so, you know, I think the, the heart health issues. Um, it's a little bit hard to say what sort of the ongoing impact is in somebody who's premenopausal and, you know, relatively healthy in other ways. Um, it's probably not one of the more significant impacts, um, but it definitely seems to be there. And it, you know, I think as, as I discussed in the book, one of the issues is that when you don't have the estrogen, your arteries are a little bit less elastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think we just don't really know enough at this point. And so I think it's great that there are some ongoing research, research studies. Um, In fact, there is, there is one that I think they're just starting recruitment for out at um, Mount Sinai in California, Dr. Schufelt. So if any of your listeners are interested, um, I will be sharing information on that soon and they can certainly reach out to Mount Sinai and see if they would be um, a good candidate for the study. Yeah, no, that's amazing because I I do feel like it's an issue that's being talked about more. So hopefully Mm -hmm. there's more like subjects that we can study in the future to, to learn. I know when I was like, probably, well, 20, probably 2004 to essentially like 2016, when I found your book, it was so hard for me to figure out why I wasn't getting a period. 
I never personally got misdiagnosed with PCOS, probably because I don't know, I, at least, at least my doctors were, you know, up to speed enough to know that that didn't really sound right. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. A lot of people do get this misdiagnosis of PCOS. What's going on with that? Why is it so hard to get an HA? <laughs> that is an excellent question. Um, <laughs> You know, I think one of the reasons is that PCOS is much more prevalent than HA. So the the rate of HA is something around one to four percent of the sort of population of people with the uterus of reproductive age. Okay. Um, PCOS is probably in the ten to fifteen percent range, um, and so I think it's just something that a lot of a lot more doctors have seen before, and so somebody comes in with with the, and the, the, um, the symptoms or the, mm-hmm. the diagnostic, the diagnostic criteria are quite overlapping. So, um, not having a period that's equally similar with HA and PCOS, um, having lots of follicles on your ovaries. And that's a place where there's been a lot of research done that has sort of given us the ability to really quantify fairly well the difference between HA and PCOS, but it's not research that a lot of doctors are necessarily aware of. So they see a lot of follicles on their ovary and they're like, oh, it's polycystic and oh, you have PCOS and mm-hmm. you know, that's your diagnosis. Um, whereas we, what the studies that have looked very closely at different populations of people have found that the cutoff for diagnosing polycystic ovaries is 25 or more follicles per ovary, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and also an ovarian volume of greater than 10 cubic centimeters or 10 milliliters. That's almost an easier criterion to look at is just the ovarian volume, not even thinking, not even worrying too much about the number of follicles because that number of follicles can be really hard to count. <laughs> um, yeah. so that's, that's a place where there can be some, you know, people with HA can have what are called multi-cystic follicles. So lots of follicles, but ovaries tend to be smaller and just not quite as many. But, you know, again, if somebody's just taking cursor look, that it's easy to confuse. Um, So blood work is really the place where I see the biggest difference and the place that I think is really important for for doctors to be looking at. So the, um, I have the PCOS versus HA chapter of my book is a free download from my website because I think it's so important. It's so helpful. I, I send people that all the time because it's a great, great resource for if you've had labs done, you know, to, Mm -hmm. to be able to look at the two. Um, and then also, you know, kind of like reading stuff on your blog, because I feel like sometimes too, it can be those lifestyle questions that are make or break. It's like, what actually makes sense for you based off of what we know can lead to PCOS versus what we know can lead to HA. Yeah. And I think another thing that's often not considered is that um, it's less likely for someone to develop PCOS kind of all of a sudden in their mid Um, thirties. You know, that it tends to be something that sort of starts manifesting during the late teenage years. So for somebody to like, you know, you lose your period at the age of 30 and they say poly, you know, PCOS. It's like, well, you know, if you had a regular period before then it's in my, from my perspective, it's a lot less likely. So sort of thinking about that, that etiology piece as well is, is important. Yeah. That's Um, interesting. And that's helpful too. Yeah. 
Well, and so, you know, if somebody is in the exploration process, of course, you have your free download, which is super helpful. And you have your book. What else, you know, beyond blood work, are there some things that you usually um, recommend people look at if they are, I don't know which one, you know, makes sense for me. PCOS has some other physical manifestations, but they do tend to be sort of a little bit on the harder side to judge. Um, So uh, acne, you know, that's sort of not super treatable, maybe in places other than your face, um, that tends to be more common with PCOS. Um, Hirsutism, which is sort of hair is growing in places where maybe as a person, you know, biological female, you might not expect them sort of a more of a quote unquote male pattern, hair pattern, pattern growth. Um, Insulin resistance, obviously that's not a physical sign. That's something you would have to get blood work done to kind of check on. Um, So those are some of the other, some of the other things, but I think just sort of looking at your lifestyle history and what's happened around the time when you lost your period or when you think you might have lost your period, um, you know, particularly if you've had, if you had a time where you lost a fair bit of weight, um, you know, that's often a sort of risk factor for HA. And I think because once the hypothalamus is shut down, it kind of tends to stay shut down until you baby it a little bit. So mm-hmm. it's like you can, you know, that severe weight loss, you know, quote unquote severe. I mean, it's, you know, it depends what, whatever it is for your body, um, you know, it level of under fueling that it requires that one requires to lose weight is often sufficient to shut down the hypothalamus. And then, like I said, you have to baby it a little bit to get it to start mm-hmm. back up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hence the recovery process. Hence the yes. quote unquote mm-hmm. all in. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Thanks for sharing that you know, another question kind of along those lines that I get a lot, will you always be at risk for losing your period again in the future? I would say you probably have a higher likelihood of being sensitive and having to be careful. I mean, that said, like, I do not think about my food and exercise anymore. Like I still, I, I play ice hockey a couple times a week. I, you know, I go biking, I go skiing, I just eat whatever food I feel like eating when I feel like eating. And I, I don't think about it. Um, you know, so I think that when your body is at a place that's, that it's happy in terms of its size and you're not sort of forcing exercise when you, you know, you're not forcing exercise to sort of look a certain way and doing it regardless of how you feel, you know, when you listen to your body, you know, it, it just, it just kind of seems to work. And I think if you, you know, so the, the times when I see people losing their periods again after having had HA the first time, it's adding exercise without adding fuel. Um, you know, it's deciding I'm not super happy with how my body looks, so I'm going to deliberately restrict my food again. Um, so it's sort of getting away from the body acceptance that I think is sort of part of all in, like we were talking about before, mm-hmm. it's deciding that your body is not okay as it is, or, or sometimes, like I said, it's just, it's adding exercise without consciously adding fuel because, mm-hmm. or maybe not recognizing if you, you know, I mean, I play ice hockey twice a week, so, you know, that's not that much, but if somebody's running every single day, you know, they might have to be a little bit more mindful, mindful about fueling well, mm-hmm. um, just because, Sometimes high intensity exercise doesn't necessarily lead to hunger cues from our body to make right. up for that energy that's been spent. Right. So, 
you know, I think you just, you just have to get to know your body and that's why tracking ovulation can be super helpful. So if you're adding exercise, definitely like track your ovulation for a few months because that can give you sort of an early warning sign. You know, if you notice that, okay, I'm, you know, I'm training for a marathon, I'm running five days a week now instead of three days a week, my ovulation is a week late, eh, I probably need to eat some more food. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's so helpful. So once you, when you, when you have your period back, you're tracking ovulation and you're noticing patterns in your cycle, which Mm -hmm. is about tracking ovulation it probably won't be a, oh my gosh, where's my period, right? Because yeah. then you can go, okay, yeah. I haven't ovulated, so I don't expect my period on cycle yes. 20 or whatever. <laughs> yep. Right. Yeah, and I, I do, um, with the ovulation tracking, like some apps basically tell you, like, you are going to ovulate this day. And it's like, ah, you know, not necessarily. So just because the app says you're going to ovulate right. does not necessarily mean you're going to ovulate. So I think it is important to... Um, at least track your cervical mucus so that you can, so that you know, like, is my cervical mucus aligning with ovulation um, or tracking temperature? You know, once, once you kind of get a good sense from your temperature, if you're ovulating or not, then you can often do it just by mucus. But to start with, definitely, I would do like tracking mucus and temperature. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't believe the app just because it says you're ovulating does not mean you're actually ovulating. Right, right. Yeah. So much of this like cycle education, I feel like, I, I know I missed out on, like, you just mm-hmm. have to educate yourself, but I feel like there's some good yep. resources out there. Yeah. Well, and so that's super helpful. So what I'm hearing is that through recovery, through real recovery, mental and physical, you can get to a place where you don't have to overthink everything you eat. You don't have to worry about, you know, the exercise that you're doing that you enjoy doing. Um, yep. but it's usually more whenever people are maybe being stuck in their recovery or they're really struggling with body image and feeling like weight loss is going to make them, you know, happier with themselves again, mm-hmm. that we're putting our bodies probably at risk for period loss again, just knowing yeah. that that's kind of how our bodies respond to calorie restriction over exercise and all of those things. And so, um, do you have any advice for anyone who is maybe in that place in recovery? They're like, dissatisfied with the recovery process and they're struggling with accepting where their natural body might be like, what, what would you, what would you say to a person in this space right now? Um, I think really recognizing that our bodies are so much more than what they look like. So I think the book more than a body by Lindsay and Lexi kite is fantastic. Highly recommend it. Um, it just, it sort of goes through a lot of the reasons why we are so focused on appearance and how much better our lives can be when we're not. Um, you know, I, I always used to, I used to hate my thighs because I would sit down and they would kind of sploosh out and I'd be like, oh my God, they're so huge. And it's like, you know why they're huge? Because I play ice hockey. I can squat, you know, twice my body weight. And, you know, it's like, that's awesome. Like the fact that they smush out a little bit, who freaking cares? Like mm-hmm. if they didn't, I wouldn't be able to do all these cool things, you know? So I think it's really changing the way that we think about our bodies. Um, you know, the tagline of the book is my body is an instrument, not an ornament. And mm-hmm. I love that because we are so encouraged to be beautiful and, you know, put on the makeup and the high heels. And I do not wear high heels anymore. Let me tell you, <laughs> like, <laughs> No, thank you. Patriarchy. Um, so yeah, I mean, just really focusing more on 
the cool things that you can do with your body and with your mind. I mean, we are so much more than what our bodies can do or what they look like. Um, and so really working on appreciating a body in that way. And so a lot of that comes from choosing who you're following on social media. Um, you know, if you're following people who are very body focused, that's going to make you feel more body focused too. So, you know, I, I rarely post pictures on my Instagram because I don't, you know, I don't think it matters what I look like, you know, mm -hmm. what my body looks like that that's, that's not helpful for somebody mm -hmm. else who's trying to recover in their own body. You know, so getting away from following people who are very still focused on what they look like and, you know, posting bikini photos or whatever. It's like, eh, you know, mm. show me it's, like, show me yourself playing a musical instrument, you know, yeah, show me, show, show you me know. You eating pasta or enjoying yeah. some time with your family or your pet or your best friend. Yeah. I yes. completely agree. And that's such a good point that if you're feeling stuck in your recovery, specifically around body image, you know, you're never going to feel good in your skin when you're constantly comparing yourself mm -hmm. to an airbrushed, mm -hmm. perfectly lit, highly yep. edited photo of someone else. That's probably not even like what they look like in real life. And so social mm -hmm. media can really triggering, really scary. I think there's, again, a lot of good things on social media. Um, but yeah, just like careful yeah. because it is going to be hard to accept yeah. yourself when you you open up your social media and you're spending, I don't know, two, three, four hours a day on social media and your Instagram feed is full of fitness models. Like that's <laughs> yes. going to be so hard to accept your body that probably doesn't look like a fitness model. Or maybe but, even harder if it used to, and now it doesn't anymore. I mean, that can be even more triggering. So yeah, I mean, really like going out and finding new, cool, interesting people to follow, like diversifying your feed as much as you yes. can in terms of you know, people's body sizes, shapes, colors, genders, all of that. I mean, I think that, you know, there are just some amazing people out there with incredible feeds and, you know, very positive in, you know, sort of on, on all sides of, you know, multiple issues and, you know, going out and looking, looking, looking at those things and looking at people who are changing the world in positive ways. I mean, you know, I think that that's, um, you know, that gives you ideas of what you might be able to do instead of, going to the gym for two hours a day, <laughs> like, right, right. like what else take that you? energy and, you know, spend it somewhere else. It's yeah. yeah. I love that. That is so helpful. Um, Dr. Sykes, thanks so much for your time and coming on today and your nuggets of wisdom. We appreciate everything that you've done with the book and everything that you're doing in your community. Um, can you also just share how, you know, people listening, how do they get in touch with you? If they're like, I want to work with Dr. Sykes. She sounds amazing. Is it website? Is it social? How do they get in touch with you? Um, so all, all of the above, any of the, I mean, they're just, <laughs> just through my website or just going to like, if people want to work with me directly, no period.info slash appointments, um, that'll take you directly to my booking site. Um, website is no period. Now what.com. My support group is at noperiod.info slash support. Um, and from there, there's like a getting pregnant space, which you actually helped me moderate, Lindsay, which is lovely. Um, you know, there's space for people with primary HA, um, people working on bone density, um, trying to get pregnant um, once they are pregnant, uh, you know, support group for those who are pregnant or have had babies. Um, so lots of different, lots of different sort of communities within the larger community. Um, and then I'm on Instagram at no period. Now what? 
Um, so that's also a place to get in touch with. So, so website to get in touch with Dr. Sykes and she has communities for whatever stage you're at in recovery um, and beyond. So again, thanks so much for your time and you guys don't be afraid to reach out to her on social if you found this episode to be helpful. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. If you found this episode to be inspiring or helpful, please share on social media and tag me at food.freedom.fertility. Also, don't forget to leave a rating and a review.